welcome to our verse-by-verse study of the Old Testament book of the minor prophet Zechariah. The book of Zechariah contains more visions and prophecies regarding Christ and the end times than all the rest of the minor prophets combined. The role of the prophet was to tell God's people what God thinks about them and what they are doing or not doing. God cares about his people and he cares about everything in their lives. The book of Zechariah reminds us of God's constant thoughts and teaches us about his plans for the future so that we have hope when we need it. So grab a cup of coffee, open your Bible to the book of Zechariah as we look for Christ in the Old Testament. Turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 8, Zechariah 8. I'm going to start this morning with a question. How important is truth? Very. That is exactly what my notes say. Thank you very much. <laughs> very important. Somebody's been reading my notes. That's okay. That's okay. Truth is how we define and describe and interact with reality. Well, that's how we should define and describe and interact with reality is by truth. One of the signs of maturity is a growing understanding of reality. You know, when children are very small, their understanding of the world around them is very small. In fact, the world is kind of like centered around them, right? It's about what I want and what I feel and what I need. You know, the smaller they are, the more, the more self-centric are all of, is the whole world. Everything is about them. And as we grow and mature, we start to realize, okay, there's more to the world than just me. Hopefully. Some of you might still be struggling with that. No, none, nobody in this group. Um, just people, maybe, no, nobody watching online because you're really good people too. But uh, we're, all, we're all good people. Yeah, right. We're going to talk about that later too. No, but when, as we grow and mature, we, we, we move past that. We start, to, we start our, our view of the world and reality grows and expands in how we interact with it grows and changes as well. What do you think might happen if your truth is not true? If your truth is not true, what might happen? What, what if an adult believes that they are the center of the universe, that all of the world revolves around them? What if they believe that? What happens? Who, who else believes that? Probably no one believes that. And so anyone that comes in contact with a person who believes they are the center of the universe is going to disagree with them and create conflict and, and division and, and who knows what else. If they expect the world to act like they are the center of the universe, the reality is the world's not going to, it's not going to comply. It's not going to give in. It's not going to do it. Well, that is the world we're living in. And in a, in a very, very much so, we're living in this world that has, has a very strange view of reality. And it describes it in ways that are just, well, they're not true. You know, people are trying to live out their truth and expecting the rest of the world to agree with them. They're expecting the rest of the world to say, okay, yeah, your truth, that must be true because you believe it's true, therefore it must be true even though I believe the exact opposite. Oh, how do you live like that? Well, we just look out in our culture. You can see how we live like that. We live in conflict. We live, we're divided. We're, we're, you know, people are angry. Gosh, the number one emotion I see going on in our culture today is anger because the rest of the world won't go along with my truth. That's what the rest of the world is saying. If you just go along with my truth, everything would be okay. The problem is I don't believe that your truth is true. People are trying to live in direct contradiction 
to reality. How do you, how do, you do that? The clearest example we have that today is transgenderism and, and any of the other, many of the other sexual gender ideologies kind of all fall into that same category. It's a rejection of truth and an attempt to uh, pervert or corrupt reality. It just, it, will, it just ignores or redefines reality in such a way to fit within a different, a different, a different framework of what they describe as truth. Because everyone that falls into those categories that does this thing believes that they are true and that what they're doing is truth. But truth that is real is not subjective or relative. It can't be. A truth that is subjective or relative cannot be true truth. Truth is always in direct conformity with reality. Listen, here's the, here's the hard truth about truth, about real, about truth. It doesn't care what you feel. It doesn't care what you think. It doesn't care what you need or want. Truth is simply true. Now, I can say, I feel like a duck. I had to pick an animal. I was going to say goat, but then everybody say, yeah, you are. You're an old goat. Okay, that, okay, no, okay I'm not going to use that one. I feel like a duck. Does that make me a duck? Why not? But I, I, really, I really, 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 really feel it. Deep down in my spirit, my soul. But it's not real. It's not true. I can say... I identify as a five-foot-two man in my mid-twenties. Does that make it true? No. I, I identify as a six-nine super athlete that can dunk on, on Kobe Bryant. I believe that. Does it make it true? No, because it doesn't conform with reality and nothing I say nothing I do is going to change that truth that is true must conform to reality and this is why this is so important to us this this is the main thing that we must keep in mind when it comes to truth. Truth that is true is the only pathway to what is good. Truth that is true is the only pathway to that which is good. Nothing else is. Many in our culture are trying to live truths that are not true. It's true to them. They believe it. And, and maybe, maybe they really, maybe somehow these things that they say they believe, that they really, really believe them. And, and I, I can't say that they don't. But if they're not true, then it, then it can't lead them to good. And we can see that so clearly when we're looking at it from the outside and we're looking into these, these things, we can see that does not lead to good. Instead, it results in conflict and despair and brokenness and hate and division and, and, and immeasurable pain and suffering. You know, I... I pray the Lord comes soon. We are, we are raising up a generation that is going to experience a kind of pain and suffering that, we, that this culture has never, ever known. We, there is no way to predict the consequences of what we as a culture are allowing in this country. And it will result in a kind of pain and suffering the world has never seen before. But we've got to stand up. 
as Randy said, we've got we've to look at these things where people are saying, hey, you know, abortion is women's health. Uh, no, that's a lie. That's, that's false. That is, that is evil. And we need to stand against it. And things like that. We've got to stand against all these, these perverse ideologies, all these destructive lifestyles, these, these things that, 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 that people are allowing children to do and encouraging children to do are just horrible. And it's all based on some false truth. Some truth that we say, okay, this is your truth, so you go ahead and live that truth without any questioning of whether that truth is actually true or not. In our text for today, the Lord is going to talk about truth. He's going to lay out a truth, some truths. All of God's word is true. We're going to talk about that. But he's going to lay some things out. And his desire is that his people would arrange their lives around this truth. Now, I want to stand up here. I want to confess something to you. I don't know all the truth. I am not an expert on truth. I am a student of truth. And, and, and God has called me as a student of truth, not just to be a student of truth, but to be a teacher of truth as well. That, that's what I am. I, I, do not, I do not profess to know everything. I do not have all knowledge. I wish I did. I, I, wish, I, I wish I had, I, I mean, we at the conference uh, Saturday, Friday and Saturday, there were some guys, there were some smart dudes there, man. I wish I was half as smart as some of those guys. But we're here to talk about truth, and we want to know about truth because we want to arrange our lives around that truth, and then because that's the, the, that's the way, if we can arrange our lives around truth, that's the way that leads us to the good life that God promised to us, the, the abundant life that's above and beyond anything that this world has to offer us. That's what we want. But it means that we've got to look at these things. We've got to look at things like this. We've got to look at God's word and, and, and begin in a state of humility and saying, and saying, I don't know all the truth. Because if you think, if, you, if you're here right now and you say, I know it all. I, I know what truth is. I know what the truth is. I know that my life aligns with God's truth. I'm going to... I'm going to have to bust your bubble. No, you don't. No one does. We have to come into a time like this and say, God, I know that I don't know all that I need to know. I don't know all truth the way that I need to know it. Because in the end, one of the ways that we describe truth is God. Until you are like God, which will never actually be completely like God, you're not going to know all truth. You're not going to have all of your life aligned with truth. And so we come into a time like this, and we say, God, okay, here I am. And, and all of us would sit down if we say, okay, do you, what, do you, what do you know that's true? And we'd, we'd lay some things out. I know, I know this is true. I know that's true. I know that blah, blah, blah. But you cannot say that you know all truth. And so we come into a time like this, and we have to be humble before God and say, God, I don't know everything. I don't know all truth. And I don't know how my life, I don't know where in my own life where there are things that are not true, I've accepted as truth. Because all of us probably have something. I, I, actually, let me rephrase that. All of us do have something that we've accepted as truth, which in fact is not. And it's not that it's all wrong. I, I mean, if you look at, if you look at the, the temptation of Eve in the garden, when the serpent came and he deceived Eve, he didn't, he didn't tell her, he didn't say, take, okay, God said this. No, he didn't mean that. He meant something completely different. He took what God said and then twisted it. So he took the truth and just twisted it a little bit. Because by twisting it a little bit, he could get her to do what he wanted her to do. And many of us, that's what we have. We have a little, just slightly twisted truth, and we don't even know it. And it affects the way that we live our lives. It affects the way we relate to people around us. It affects us in our relationships. It affects us in how we deal with finances and, and you know, politics and everything else going on in the world. Everything we've got, every, every aspect of your life is connected to truth. And if, you're, and if your truth is off even a little bit, your results are going to be off 
So we want to know the truth because the truth, it's the truth that will set us free to live the life that God created us for. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this time, this opportunity to be here with your people. And we pray, Lord, as we talk about truth, that you would open our hearts and minds, help us to recognize that we don't know all that we should know, or the things that we do know, the things that we claim as truth may not be as true as we think they are. Give us the humility to, to allow your Holy Spirit to minister into our hearts and to show us maybe where we are off slightly and that we can align our truth with the true truth, your word, and that we can live those lives you created us for. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. In chapter 7, we are in Zechariah chapter 8. I, I know you knew I was going to get to the Bible eventually. Um, in, in chapter 7, the Lord had, had called his people to true worship. You know, that, 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 he's, you know, that they had come with a question about fasting and mourning as an act of worship. And they were actively rebuilding the temple. And so, you know, okay, this, you know, it's, it's a good idea to have a conversation about what worship looks like in this, this rebuilt temple. And so chapter 7 and 8 are a response to a question about this um, fasting and weeping. And then God challenged their truth in that, in chapter 7 and verse 5, it says this, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months, during those 70 years, 70 years of the exile, did you really fast for me? For me. That, that, that for me is repeated, and it's it meant to say something very clearly to us. Who were you actually doing it for? Were you really doing it for me? It's a rhetorical question. We know what the answer is. No, they weren't. It had become a religious ritual that they were doing somehow making them right with god i love god's word and i i and, and i believe that's something that god did in me and planted his love a love for his word in psalm 119 and 160 it says the entirety of your word is truth how much of your bible is truth all of it old testament well, yeah, because we're studying Old Testament, right? New Testament, yes. Every word is truth. The entirety of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous judgments endures as long as we feel like it's okay. No, it says forever. God's word endures forever. It never changes. We live in a culture that's changing so fast, we can't keep up with it. They're changing the vocabulary. They're changing the definition of words, the meanings of words. I mean, it's like, it's, like, it's hard to keep up with it. It's going on so fast. And it's done deliberately. If they don't like the way something sounds, they change the definition of it, and then they, they pound it into us until we accept it. And this is one of the things we've got to watch out for. Our culture is preaching at us incessantly things that are not true if i were to say to you this pulpit is white what would you say you've lost your mind pastor you can't even accuse me of being colorblind because even a colorblind person would know this is not white right but what if i did it day after day after day after day after day and then I started suggesting, well, well, no, if you don't think that's white, you might be a colorist. <laughs> maybe you've got some sort of an issue with color. Maybe you're, maybe you're you know, bigoted you know, about white. You know, you know, and and you, start, you start hearing this over and over and over again. There's a party, you're like, well, maybe, maybe it is white. You start questioning. That's what our culture is doing to us. Just, just incessantly pushing these things. You cannot watch anything without having the, the cultural messages being just, just 
flooding your mind and, 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 and being expressed in such a way that these false things are being portrayed as true over and over and over and over again. At what point when it's coming, not just from one thing, like, okay, I know, this, I know what color this is, and I could stand here for the rest of my life and tell you it's white, and you would know it's not white, okay? But some of the things that are coming into our minds are more subtle than that. The more, they're, they're, it's, 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 it's less obvious to some of us. And we might, we might allow, to, and we might feel, you know, before long, leaning in a direction that away from truth. What is this book? It's truth. But very specifically, God created us, all of us, all of his people, all of, all of the people, all people for all time, created them for him to be a reflection of his glory. But not, not just that. He created us so that we would be with him, so that we would know him. And so God gave us this book as a, as a revelation of himself. Everything you need to know about God is right here. Anything that God wants you to know about him is right here. If it's not in here, God doesn't need you to know about it. He'll tell you later in the next book, which is the next life. I don't know if there's going to be a book then. There are, there are books, I know that. And so we, we have this book so that we can know God. We can know the truth. Because the rest of the world, I mean, right from the very beginning, right from the garden, lies. Twisting of truth began in the very beginning. We must have a basis of truth. This word is truth. And so we have this book so we get to know God. Not just to get to know God but also get to know ourselves. One of the ways that I like to describe the Bible is as a mirror. When I look into the Bible, I want to see God, specifically in the person of Jesus Christ. I want to see Jesus in his book. And so I look into this book to see Jesus. But at the same time, God shows me me right next to him. And you know what, sometimes, that's a little alarming sometimes when I make that comparison. When I compare what God says about Jesus, I want, I want you to be like Jesus, and I see me and God's word, and they're not the same. That's why God gives us this book, so that we can see him, see God, specifically in the person of Jesus Christ, but also see ourselves. And his desire is that we would line ourselves up with him, so that literally we can, we can get to that place where when we look into the mirror of God's word, we can see ourselves like Christ. I want to live that good life that God created me for, right? I mean, isn't that our desire to live that good life, the abundant life that Jesus talks about? The pathway is truth. It's the only pathway. It's not going to be good works. It's not going to be, you know, you know, doubling your giving it's not going to be you know missionary work it's not going to be being a good person it's going to be truth aligning your life with truth is the pathway now all the other things will come out of that it'll affect every other part of your life god's word when we allow it to do that work inside of us it changes us at the conference yesterday one of the speakers quoted some statistics and I don't know if you know this, but 87% of all statistics are made up on the spot. <laughs> but one of the things he talked about, and it's a real, I mean, it's real, is that, is that when the more we expose ourselves to the Word of God, the more our life changes away from the world. It's a natural function of God's word. If we, will, if we will allow God's word into our hearts, into our minds, into our ears, into our eyes, it will change us. And they use the, you know, the statistic of four times, it's kind of like a minimum, four times a week. Less than that, 
And statistically, those people are more like the world than they are like God. They are like Jesus. If you want to be more like Jesus, it begins right here in this book. Now, you need to get saved. That's also an important thing, too. You need to do all this. You know, you need to be what the book says we ought to be. But it begins by allowing the word of God to, to get in there and do the work it says. How often should you read your Bible? Four times a week? You can. That's, that may be a good starting point. It ought to be every day. Every day. And, and let's be real. We can't do it every single day. I don't do it every single day. I get close. I get close. It's a habit I've had for a long, long time. And so I get pretty close. But I miss days. You know what I do? I read it the next day. I start over again. I rarely miss more than one day in a row. Why? Because I'm some super spiritual guy? No. I need this book. I need the truth that I get every single day. I'm fed by it. We need that. When we open it, it ought to, we ought to open this book, not so we go through the spiritual ritual, the religious ritual of reading, but so that we can know God better. And by knowing God better, we can, we can make that comparison between who we are and who he is and recognize, okay, I need to be moving toward him because otherwise, I'm moving in a different direction. If I'm not moving toward God, where am I moving toward? The world. Can I find the good life that God has for me in the world? Nope. Nope. I'll find other things. Zechariah chapter 8. <laughs> verse 1. <laughs> I'm going I'm to take a full hour. I'm going to get done on time. Promise. I better not do that. I better not say that. Sorry. I take that back. Chapter 8, verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Zion with great zeal, with great fervor. I am zealous for her. All through this chapter, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord. This is God speaking. What should, we, what should God's people do when God speaks? Listen. What kind of listen? Active listening. That means we're paying attention with a heart to respond. With a heart to respond. It says that, that, that the Lord is zealous for Zion. Zion is a, is a, is a, a, a word that points to Jerusalem, but also all of Israel. God is zealous for Israel, zealous for God's people, zealous for the people of Israel. That means he is intensely passionate about Israel and God's people. Intensely passionate. That's truth. That's reality. How does God feel about Israel? Zealous, intensely passionate. What should we do with that? Should we not examine our own hearts and ask ourselves, how do I feel about Israel? What is my attitude toward? What is my heart toward Israel? If God is zealous toward Israel, where should we be? It's good to say, we stand with Israel, right? We got the flag flying, we pray for them, and that's good, that's good. But where's God looking when we say things like that? He's looking at the heart. Do you really care for God's people? Now, now again, we can look at Israel and say, well, you know, but they, look at them. They're kind of like belligerent and kind of, you know, obnoxious, and they are not, they're not worshiping God the way they should. Okay. But does that change the truth of how God feels about them? Nope. Not even a little bit. And I'm so thankful for that. If you've ever been around me for any length of time, you know I get pretty obnoxious sometimes too. God cares about Israel. 
And he cares about how we care about Israel. In Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. This is a promise God made to Abraham. And it was an eternal promise that, was, that would never end. No matter what Israel did, no matter how far they wandered from him, no, how, no matter how bad they rebelled against him, they would always be this people that God is zealous for. Not just the people, but the land as well. God cares deeply for Israel, and so should we. This is one of those truths that we, need to, we just need to let God do a work in our heart about. That doesn't mean you have to, you know, don't be weird, but, you know, but you know, let God do a work there. And when, when, when we talk about Israel, ask God, is my heart right about Israel? When you see the flag, do I care about Israel? When Randy says, oh, there's going to be an election next month in Israel, do you care about that? We should. We should. And that takes us just allowing God, the Holy Spirit, to do that work and to change our heart. And just, to tell, I mean, one of the ways you change your heart is by telling your heart when it's wrong. You know that? <laughs> you know, if I, look, if I can look at that flag and say, oh, Israel, yeah, so what? Just tell your heart, you know what? That's not the right way to feel. I should care about Israel. I should love Israel. I should be zealous for Israel. Verse 3. Thus says the Lord, I, the Lord speaking, will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. The, the, all through this, and especially as we get into chapter 9 and on, there's a ton of prophetic stuff in there. So much of Randy and I were talking about this. We could spend forever talking about these next few chapters coming up. We're not. We're going we're gonna to get through them pretty fast. But the reality is there's a ton of stuff here. And we're talking, and we're talking about here this, this, this idea that God's going to return to Zion. The most clear picture we have of that is the first advent. The first advent was a preview of, of this verse right here. When, when it says, I will return, God will return to Zion, to Jerusalem, we saw that in the person of Jesus Christ, especially as we led into that time when he came and, and presented himself in, uh, on the, right before his crucifixion. But ultimately, the final fulfillment, the final um, reality of this is the second coming. When Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom and presents himself as their God, then that, tr that prophecy will be fulfilled. And we see that all through Scripture. We see these partial fulfillments. And when Randy talks about the fulfilling of prophecy in the news all around, that's what we see. These partial fulfillments happening on an ongoing basis in the news right now, and they're, they're picking up speed and intensity, and we're going to see the ultimate fulfillment, um, hopefully pretty soon. Listen, God promised that he was going to be their God, and he was going to make Jerusalem his city, the holy mountain, referring to Mount Moriah. And his promises, and this is so important to us, even as Christians, we understand this, God's promises are not nullified by our rebellion or disobedience. You cannot cancel God's promises. You, you might postpone them. You, you, might, you might not get to see them fulfilled in the way that you desire them, but they cannot be canceled because God's promises are certain. The Jews failed to live up to their end of the covenant. And what did God do? He punished them. He kicked them out of the land more than once. You know, you know Zechariah is ministering to people who had come back from a 70-year exile. And after Christ came, they would go into what ended up being 2,000 years out of the land, dispersed all around the world. But God's promises are sure. He will bring them back. He is bringing them back, and he will come back, and he will show up. He'll walk into that city and be their God. 
verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand because of great age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. This is a promise of security and safety and prosperity. People are just, they're able to just go. I mean, I mean right now, I, I grew up playing in the streets. I, I feel sad for our kids. I mean, I mean, we as parents and grandparents, we have to, you know, we're always on guard. There's dangers all around. Our kids are not safe. We gotta keep them behind fences. Sad. I can remember as a kid, just getting up in the morning and going, and I'd come back, you know, I gotta be back before dark. I'd be gone all day. I mean, how many of us? Grew up that way. Would you let one of your grandkids do that now? Not a chance. No way. But a day was coming, is coming to Jerusalem. And, and this ultimately points to the millennium, to the thousand-year reign of Christ after the second coming. That certainly wasn't the reality when, the Jew, when Zechariah was talking to these Jews. That wasn't their reality. The city was a mess, and they were surrounded by people that didn't like them. And so as, as Zechariah is saying this, he's saying, oh, yeah, it's going to be so good. Yeah, your old people, they're just going to hang out in the streets. They're, you know, no, no fear, no worries. They, they have everything they need. They're just sitting around chatting with one another. It's all good. Kids are playing in the streets. There are no grumpy old men telling them to get off their lawn. It's just, being, it's just good. And the people looking around and saying, okay, uh, yeah, sure. I'll believe it when I see it, kind of a thing. The Lord knows what they're thinking. Verse 6, thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, the days that Zechariah is talking, will it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Lord of hosts. Now, there's sometimes where the translators use words that, that for us as modern readers, they just don't translate well. And this is one of those cases. Marvelous would be better translated here as difficult. Is it, you know, you look at that and you say, yeah, that, that, that's a little hard to imagine. Would that, and, and he says, is, would it be hard for me to imagine? God speaking? That word is translated as too hard in Genesis 18, 13 and 14, when the Lord said to Abraham, oh, by the way, your 90-year-old wife is going to get pregnant. And what did Sarah do? She laughed, like, yeah, right. He's 100, I'm 90, nah. And he said, and, and he said in 18, Genesis 18, 13, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard. That, that phrase too hard there is the same word as um, the word marvelous in our text. Too hard for the Lord. At the appointed time, I'll return to you according to the time of life. Sarah shall have a son. This word, word is also used, same word is used in Isaiah 9-6 to describe the Messiah. And, and, it's, and it's given the idea of one who does wondrous or difficult things. In Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on upon, upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful. Same word there. Gives that sense of the one who does wonders or difficult things. What he's saying is, is you're looking at this and you're saying, nah, I don't see how that could happen. God says, if I said it, it's not too hard for me to imagine. If, I, if, I, if, if, if it's not too hard for me then, you know, I can do it. God can do anything he says, right? Do you acknowledge that? If God says it, he can do it. And we must, that's truth. When God utters the words, it is truth. And we have to, we then live our lives according to that truth. Whether you, whether you believe it or not, when God says it, it's gonna happen. Verse seven. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people, save there is also the sense of deliver my people 
from the land of the east and the land of the west. And I will bring them back, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. This is this God saying, I will bring my people back. At the time that Zechariah is writing this, there are people in Jerusalem, but there are also people in Babylon and scattered all around the world. They had been dispersed. God says, I'm going to bring them back. And I will be their God. It's promised to restore them back into the land. Now, now we've seen, starting in 1948, actually before that, a return of the Jews to Jerusalem, to Israel. But this is looking ahead to a different time. To a time when not only will they be restored back into the land, but that God would be their God. That they would return to the Lord as well as to the land. The Bible tells us that when Jesus comes back again, and he is coming back again, we refer to that as the second coming, he's going to present himself to the Jews. It's one of the things he'll do. One of the very first things he does is present himself to the Jews that are left, the remnant, another remnant of Jews, and they will look upon him and they will receive him as their Messiah, as their Savior. In Zechariah, in a couple of chapters, 12, 10, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Remember, he, one of the things that happened to Jesus, he was pierced on the cross. This is hundreds of years before that. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And then Romans eleven twenty six tells us at that point, all, all, all Israel will be saved. All Israel will be saved. They will come and they will, res- they will come back to this place, to the land, to Jerusalem. Jesus will present himself and they will be saved. And only then will they live in truth and righteousness. They're not doing that now. Some maybe, but most are living apart from God. That being true, the Lord then exhorts them. In verse 9, thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. You have been hearing in these days these words by the mouth of the prophets who spoke in the day the foundation was laid, the foundation of the, the rebuilt temple, for the house of the Lord of hosts, that the temple might be built for before these days, There were no wages for man, nor any hire for beast. There was no peace from the enemy for whoever went out and came in. For I set all men, everyone, against his neighbor. God says, things have been going pretty hard for you. It's been a difficult time for you. And starting from the time you started to rebuild the temple up to that point, I pretty much had been resisting you until you did what I called you to do, and that's to get to work on the temple. But now, verse 11, I will not treat the remnant of this people as in the former days, says the Lord host. I'm going to treat you differently, God says. For the seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give its fruit, the ground shall give her increase, and the heavens shall give their due. I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these. And it shall come to pass that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, speaking of a time when the two um, halves of the nation will be brought back together again, I will save you or deliver you, and you shall be a blessing. Do not fear, let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, just as I determined to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I would not relent. So again, in these days, I am determined to do good to Jerusalem and the house of Judah. Do not fear, because they would not respond to the prophets, because they would not yield to God's will and do what God was saying to them. He said they provoked him. They kept, they kept it's, it's, it's like, you know, when you, know, you had a couple of kids and one of them is, keeps picking and, and poking on one of the other ones. They're provoking them. To what? To wrath. Because what's going to happen eventually? You're gonna, one of them is going to reach out and smack them, right? I mean, I, I, if you've had more than one child, that's often what happens. And he said, you did that to me. You provoked me to wrath. But 
I'm going to do good. I am determined to do good for you. This relatively small number of people who returned were struggling to rebuild the temple. It was difficult. And back in chapter 1, God had called them to repent of not working on it and told them, get back to work. Get to work. Calls them to obey and said the result would be prosperity. Much of what the Lord has said has dealt with how they were to relate to God. And, and anytime you come to the Bible, there are really two elements you, you always ought to be watching for. There, there's a vertical element and a horizontal element. How does this, what does this teach me about God and my relationship with him? But then there's, there's an, a vertical or horizontal element to do. How does this apply to life? How does this apply to relationship? How does this apply to the world? How does this apply to people? So always look for the vertical and the horizontal whenever we're opening up Scripture. So we get into that here in verses 16 and 17, looking at the horizontal. These are the things you shall do. Speak each man the truth to his neighbor. Give judgment in your gates for truth, justice, peace. In other words, if you're going to make a judgment between right and wrong, do it the right way and make it in truth and righteousness. Let none of you think evil in your heart against neighbor, against your neighbor, and do not love a false oath. For all these things I hate, says the Lord. Why? Why would the Lord have to say these things to his people? Why would he have to tell them not to lie to each other? Why would he have to tell them to, 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 do, you know, to, to give judgment based on truth, justice, and peace. Why would he have to tell them those things? Shouldn't they just know those things? Well, remember where these people came from. The, every one of them, every person that was living in Jerusalem at that point had been raised in the wicked, corrupt, evil place of Babylon. That's where they grew up. They grew up in a culture that this was not normal. This was not natural. Now, we've all grown up in a culture that says weird stuff. Like, be true to yourself. Be true to yourself. You be you. All right? Anybody ever heard that? You be yourself. Or, or you have to love yourself before you can love anyone else, right? Anybody ever heard all those? And I know you're not raising your hand because you know what I'm going to say next, right? They're all lies. They're all wrong. Every one of them. And most of these pithy little statements you get out of the culture, they're wrong. Should you be true to yourself? Nope. Be true to God. You be true to God. And he'll take care of the rest. Should you love yourself before you can love others? Nope. Love God. And then he, through you, will love others. The Bible doesn't tell you to love yourself. Oh, you've got to learn to love yourself so that you can love others. No, you don't. You already love yourself a lot. <laughs> love God. And for heaven's sake, don't be yourself. That's one of the worst ones. Who should we be? Like Christ. Be like Christ. If you're trying to be yourself, you're settling for something so much less than what God wants for you. So much less. And that's how people are winding up doing and saying some of the things they're doing now because they're focused on being, being me. But what if the me you think you are is wrong it's not based in truth you know what i just think i want to be a lie but you try to be yourself that's what you might be doing john 13 34 a new commandment i give to you that you love one another as i have loved you that you also love one another a new commandment Jesus gives to his disciples a new commandment. Love 
one another. Why did that have to be a commandment? Because it's not natural. I'm going to love myself before I love anyone else. That's natural. Not to love others. Not to love them in the same way that Christ loved me. That's not natural. It has to be a commandment. And especially if the, if the, in, if the culture around me is having any influence on me, that's not natural. It has to be a commandment because our culture is telling us something different. But God says you need to love God first and then others. And you know what? The love you need, the love you want, comes out of that. Comes as a result of that. It's a fruit of that. A fruit of loving God and loving others is the love we need. I want you to notice there at the end of verse 17, it says that the things in verse 16 and 17, what is God's attitude toward them? He hates those things. If God hates something, what should our attitude be toward it? Should be the same, right? I mean, would anybody agree that we should hate the same things that God hates? But, you know, wait a minute, you know, should, shouldn't we love? Yeah. Love the things that God loves, hate the things that God hates. In Proverbs 6, 16, this would make a great series. I might take a couple of months and teach this series. Proverbs 6, 16 and through 19. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. An abomination. There is no stronger word in the Bible to describe God's attitude toward sin than this word right here, abomination. It is, it is as bad as it can possibly get. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, can you say abortion? A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. God hates things. They are an abomination to God. They are the worst possible things. And yet, can we look in our culture and not see every last one? Some of them are, are celebrated. Some of them are being demanded as a right. I have a right to commit this abomination. Our attitude must look at these things in the same way that God does. And brothers and sisters, I'm going to say something really hard right now. The church has lost this. The church is not seeing these things the way that God sees them. For the most part, we have become numb to them. We just, okay, yeah, probably shouldn't do that. That's not God's heart. God looks at them as an abomination. And, and if we just put up with and tolerate these abominations in the world around us, are we not adding to the problem? Now, here's what I need, to, I need to give you a caveat here. God hates these things, but does God hate the people that are doing them? No, God hates no one. We, we have to walk a fine line in this world. We have to hate the abominations that God hates, but we must love everyone, everyone. And when we lose that and we focus on the abomination and hating the abomination and we allow that hate to transfer over to people, that's when bad things start to happen. That's when it becomes evil. We must have the same heart as God's. God looks at these things, not because he doesn't want people, you know, we sometimes look at these things, and why does God hate these things so much? Why does it bother him so much? Well, because it is, it is, it is leading them away from the good that God has. It's leading them to destruction. It's leading them to evil. It's leading them to despair. It's leading them to brokenness. It's leading them to emptiness. Gosh, we're living in a time right now where people are, 
are empty. They are lonely. They are, they are, they are living in despair because they've accepted these things out here as truth and they're not truth and they cannot lead them to good. God hates it when those people that he created for good are, are, are running away from the good. He hates that. But he loves them. Loves them so much that no matter how bad they are, no matter how far they've run, he sent his son to die for them and to give them a way back. And every last one of them can come back. Can we say hallelujah? Because that was like all of us, right? Except for those of you that were born Christians. Any of you born Christians? You need to go talk to Randy because that's not a real thing. I'm over, and I still have, burn it. See, I know I shouldn't have promised. Okay, I'm going to finish. Hold on. Hold on. This whole thing is a response to a question, so let's go look at, at the Lord's final, finally gets to the answer of the question. Verse 18, then the Lord, the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, the fast of the tenth, shall be joy and gladness and cheerful feast for the house of Judah. Therefore, therefore, love, truth, and peace. Oh, see the connection there. What does truth lead to? Peace. Without truth, there can be no peace. You know, we, we, you know, we live in a, in a Time when we have an organization whose sole purpose is to bring peace to the world, the United Nations. How's it doing? <laughs> it's not. It, it, it has made no effort, it has made no progress toward peace in the world. None. Why? It has it does not base any of its any of its conversations or opinions or anything else on truth. No truth is involved. You know, the truths they're using are the world's truths. And those truths don't lead to peace. And we can see that all through the world. This ultimately is looking ahead to a time in the future, the millennium. Psalm 30, verse 11, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. Speaking of a time after Christ returns and he establishes his kingdom upon the earth and all of the struggles and tribulations and holocausts the Jews have endured will be gone. And for all of us, we have a similar sort of a thing. We have the, the, the reality there's going to be a day coming when all of our struggles are over. You know, we, we, we might have to live through some stuff in this life, but not after Jesus comes for us. Love, truth, and peace. And that word peace is the word shalom. You know, in 14, John 14, 27, Jesus said, A peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Our peace is in Christ. It can only be in him. If we are looking to the world for peace, it doesn't have it. It cannot provide it. And we will always be disappointed. At this time, the Jews that are living in the land, they're, they're an insignificant group of people, not many of them, and they're struggling just to survive. But God's plan for them was so much bigger than that. Verse 20, and then we're going to finish in about 20 minutes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, people shall yet come, inhabitants of many cities, the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, let us continue to go and pray before the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. That's the idea of seeking his presence. I myself will go also, yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and pray before the Lord. This is, again, speaking of the, the time of the millennium. Verse 23, thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from every nation of the nation shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. The idea that the Jews will be brought back right now, they are despised, they are rejected, they are they are, they are um, uh, re, you know, revolted in the, in the eyes of the world around them, but there's going to be a day coming when they're going to be elevated to this place of great um, esteem in the eyes of the rest, whole rest of the world is going to look to the Jews and say, wow, can I go with you to Jerusalem to worship God? Because I know God is with you. That's, that's the future of the Jew. As God was speaking to this humble 
remnant that could not imagine that. Couldn't have imagined it. In a million years, they couldn't have imagined that. That was God's promise to them. Their pathetic current reality did not define their glorious future. No matter how small you might think you are, no matter how insignificant you think your life might be, God has a glorious future for you as well, for all of us. And his desire for you is that you would come to know his promises, his truth, and then line your life up and live that truth. Now, you may not be able to see God's promises fulfilled. You may be able to look out and say, okay, I, don't, I don't see it, but they're there. You may not be able to reach out and grab the fulfillment of God's promises, but they're coming. And our responsibility, our only responsibility is to believe and obey. Believe and obey. And as you wait for the future that God has promised, you make God's truth your truth more every day. You, you fill your heart and mind with the word of God and you believe it, even when you don't understand it. And as God's truth becomes your truth, more and more, you are moving toward the good that God has for your life. And not just that, the more that truth becomes your truth, the more he's glorified. The more you're able to bless the people around you, and the more that you will see God manifested in the world around you. God's truth is the only truth. Know it, believe it, love it, do it. Amen? Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for your people's patience, and I thank you, Lord God, for your word that promises us that if we will know you, we'll know your word, believe, even those things we don't understand, believe them that to be the words of truth, especially those words that seem to, to disagree with what our culture is saying, that we just accept them as your truth. And then we do what you tell us to do through your word and by your spirit. That, Lord God, that we will move closer and closer to you. And so I pray for your special blessing and anointing on, on your people. That, that in this today, that they would have a new sense of, of, a, of, a, of a refreshed or revived passion for your word. That, that reading the Bible and studying the Bible and and, and listening to sermons and all the things that we might do, Lord, that it's not a, a ritual, it's not a, it's not a religious act, but it's so that we can know you. And by knowing you, that we can move closer to you. We thank you, Lord God, that you're always with us. You lead us, you guide us, you provide for us, you protect us, all the things that we need, you are. And we thank you for that. And Lord, as we prepare to close this time, I pray, Lord God, that we would take a moment and remind ourselves of, of the preeminent truth and that we were all lost, all far from you, that our sin had separated us from our, our God, our holy God, and that you sent your son to die for us, that we might have eternal life that we'd remind ourselves of that great truth every day and we'd live in, in gratefulness and that we'd be willing to share that truth with others. We thank you, Lord, for all that you are and we give this day up to you in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. God bless you all. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for joining us on this exciting journey through the book of Zechariah. It is our hope that these messages will help you to grow in your faith. If there's anything that we can do to help you with that, don't hesitate to connect with us. You can do that by going to calvaryfv.com connect, and you'll find all the ways that you can connect with us there. As Christians, we are all connected in Christ. And one of the ways that we would like to engage with you is in the area of prayer. Please let us know how we can be praying for you. You can send us an email to prayer at calvaryfv.com 
or text the word PRAY to 951-419-5396. If this material has been useful to you, please share it with someone. Also, please pray that God would use these messages to help others find hope in Jesus Christ. You can also partner with us financially by going to calvaryfv.com slash give or text the word give to 951-419-5396. Until next time, go be radical with Jesus.